So Rob, would you like to come up? So this is Rob Trixie. He's from the Oasis Bath, and you're going to be delivering one of our big topics. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, good morning, everyone. Nice to see you. Nice to be here. Um, greetings from Oasis Bath. Um, it's good to, to, to make a bit more of a link. I know that um, Claire and Joe have had a few sort of conversations and been in meetings together, but it's, uh, it's good to sort of strengthen that bond a little bit more, perhaps. So, as I say, greetings from Bath. Um, it's quite a long way up Hull, isn't it? I was kind of looking on the map and I thought, actually, it's further north than Manchester. So, shows how ignorant I am. Um, but anyway, it's great to be here. Great to be with you uh, this morning. So, yeah, we're thinking about this topic of original sin or original blessing. And... Um, before I start, just a couple of um, books to recommend. Um, so there's a slide, hopefully, which um, has got um, these on. So two books. Uh, one of them is called Humankind. You might have seen this um, in the shops. It's one of those books that's been a bit of a bestseller, so it kind of it crops up in Smiths and Waterstones and places like that. Um, well worth reading. Um, and the other book is Original Blessing. Um, and uh, these two books sort of complement each other pretty well in terms of thinking about this topic. So Original Blessing is looking at th the theology, looking at what the Bible says uh, about this question. And the other book is really looking at what social science has to say um, about this question. Are human beings good or are human beings bad? That's essentially what, what the question is, is um, or what the book is looking at. So they kind of work quite well together. And although this... Um, it looks very thick, it looks a bit daunting, it's very readable, lots of stories, lots of really interesting stuff in there. So, um, a couple of books to recommend. And then if we get look at the next slide, um, another book, um, probably one of the most uh, widely read novels, I imagine, of the 20th century. So how many people read this at school? How it was, yeah... So quite a lot of people have read it at school because it often crops up on English literature um, syllabuses. Uh, Lord of the Flies by William Golding. Um, and it's been quite an influential book. Um, and for those of you that don't know the story, uh, it tells the story of a group of boys who are shipwrecked um, on a desert island. And at first, life is fairly idyllic. But before long, uh, there's a descent into tribalism and violence, and that all culminates in the death of one of the boys called Piggy. Um, uh, and in the end, the boys are rescued. And right at the end of the, the novel, the main protagonist, Ralph, reflects on all that's happened. And the, the last words uh, of the novel are these. So if we could have the next slide. It ends with these words. Ralph wept. For the end of innocence, the darkness of man's heart, and the fall through the air of the true wise friend called Piggy. So the novel has a, has a lot to say, I think, about, um, about the nature of fear, about what happens when we fear the enemy out there, when we sense there's something out there, or we begin to fear other people. So there's a lot in there. It's a very powerful story. But what about those final lines? Was, was Golding right? Was he right when he said that there is a darkness in man's heart? There is something in us, something fundamentally wrong with us that just will always draw us towards evil. However hard we try, is there something, are we fundamentally flawed? Uh, and for most of its uh, history, I think the Western church has promoted exactly that view, um, that fundamentally there is something wrong with us. And not just because of the things that we do or the things that are done to us, but simply by virtue of being human, 
There is a darkness in the heart of every human being, so says uh, Christian theology for many centuries, and it's something that we're born with. Uh, and the technical term for this is original sin. Um, and uh, the doctrine of original sin is usually formulated something like this. So when Adam sinned in the garden, uh, a kind of infection was introduced into the human race, which passed down to everyone with no exceptions. Well, apart from Jesus, but that's in a whole other story. Uh, and so this sin nature is something that we inherit, which means that we're unable to do good on our own. We'll always be drawn to evil. Uh, and some theological traditions use the language of total depravity to talk about that, which just it sounds more, um, uh, more sort of dramatic than it, than it is really. But the idea of total depravity just means that every part of us is affected by this sin nature. That's the, that's the kind of idea. Um, so that, and that includes our reason, that includes our will, our emotions. Every part of us is affected, so, so the idea goes. So if that's true then how does God see us? How does, how does God um, relate to us? Where do we stand in relation to God if, if it is true that we are born with this kind of sin nature? Well, the news isn't good. If we, if we understand God's holiness in a, in a fairly traditional kind of way, then the news isn't good because uh, often our understanding of God's holiness, the nature and character of God, is, is that he can't tolerate evil. He can't look upon sin. He turns away from corruption. One theologian puts it like this. God is allergic to sin and evil. So on the one hand, so the idea goes, we have this, this thing about total depravity, human nature, fundamentally flawed and corrupt, on the other hand, this idea of the holiness of God, which says that God cannot look on sin and turns away from it. If you bring those two things together, you end up with something that you might call original guilt. So not only are the odds stacked against us if we wish to good li live good lives, but we're born sinners. We're already under the condemnation of God. Original sin often includes that idea as well. So not only can't we do good, we're born uh, into, a, into an, a, a context in which God is displeased with us from the beginning because we kind of uh, this particular idea of the holiness of God. So you may be sitting there thinking, well, I'm not sure about all of that. That doesn't sound very good. It doesn't sound like good news. It doesn't sound like something I want to be part of even. But you may also be thinking, yes, but this feels like it's one of those foundational things, one of those kind of pillars of our faith that if you take that away, then doesn't everything crumble? Because we perhaps some of us have been so used to hearing this idea and, and believing that this is the case. So I want to look at it a little bit this morning. And first of all, to look at where this idea came from. Because it's always a good idea. It's always a good idea to say, well, where does it come from? And we often assume perhaps, well, it comes from the Bible, doesn't it, surely? But not always the case. So it's always a good question to ask, where does this come from? And the doctrine of original sin was first articulated by a guy called Augustine. So if we could have that one. Yeah, there's, uh, that's his uh, Facebook profile page. Um, so Augustine uh, was a guy who was around towards the end of the 4th century. He's, uh, you may have heard of Augustine, uh, you may not, but he was actually probably one of the most influential thinkers in the history of the church. His ideas and his, his writings have been hugely influential down through the centuries. Um, 
And uh, Augustine was responding to the teaching of a British monk called Pelagius. Uh, and Pelagius was shocked by what he saw as the, the kind of moral laxity in the church. He looked at the church and he saw corruption, he saw immorality. And he was shocked by that. He said, how, how can this be the case? How can the people of God behave like this? And so he, he was arguing for, um, for improvement. And he said that human beings, can, we can do better than this. We're better than this. We can improve. We can be better people. We can do good. And he was promoting these ideas. And so over a period of many years, Augustine was at the forefront of a battle to defeat Pelagius and his ideas. Um, and if you think about what's going on there, so Pelagius is saying to the church, you need to reform. This isn't good enough. God is not pleased with this. We can do better than this. What tends to happen when people say things like that to people in power? Do they tend to say, oh, yes, you're right. We better change. No, they don't, do they? They push back. They resist because that's what power does. It corrupts us in that kind of way. We don't want to let go of it. And so there's this big resistance to what Pelagius is saying, and Augustine is right at the forefront of that. So as this doctrine of original sin is formulated, it's done, it, it arises in this context, which is kind of very political, really. Uh, and it's all about power, and it's all about people in power wanting to hold on to that. So it's important to remember that context. There's always a context to our beliefs. They don't just drop down from heaven, do they? There's always a context. There's always something that's going on around us that, that causes beliefs to be formulated in the way that they are. It's no different in Christian theology as any other part of life. And so Augustine is, is formulating this idea over a number of years. And this, so, so this idea of original sin goes back to Augustine. It goes back a long way, but it doesn't go back further than that. It goes back to the 4th century, not to the 1st century. So I think that's important to be aware of that. But it's become the starting point for many presentations of the gospel, isn't it? That there is this gulf between us and God, which is there from the very beginning. And something needs to be done about that. So because of this idea of original sin. But does it have any biblical basis? That's the big question, isn't it? So it goes back to Augustine. Does it go back to the Bible? Well, one of the key passages that, that um, Augustine used particularly to justify this belief uh, is in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 17. Um, and if you've not read it lately, it's not an easy passage to get your head around. But a key verse is actually verse 12. So if you could put that up. So verse 12 says this, Sin entered the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin. In this way, death came to all men because all sinned. And so... Uh, and the rest of the passage kind of develops that idea a little bit, but it does it in a way which isn't always straightforward to read and make sense of. So we've got this idea of, of kind of sin entering the world through Adam and then death following on from that. And so it's a passage that you can read in, in, as a kind of support for this idea of original sin. But actually, I think if you read it carefully and, and kind of stand back from some of the detail on it, what Paul is wanting to talk about in that passage is not about the way in which we all inherit this kind of sinful nature, the, the thing that Paul really wants to talk about is, is that Jesus has delivered us from death into life. Jesus didn't come to deliver us from a sinful nature that kind of prevents us from doing good. Jesus came to deliver us from death, which is a consequence of sin, 
into life. That's the contrast that Paul is making. So although that passage seems to be perhaps pointing us in the direction of this idea of original sin, I think when we read it carefully, that's not what it's saying. And I, and I certainly don't think we have to say, well, we've got to hold on to this belief in original sin if we want to take that passage seriously. It's certainly very possible to read it in quite a different way. And I don't think that's what Paul is really wanting to talk about there. And we don't really find this idea of original sin anywhere else. That's the closest we come in the Bible to, to this idea of something that is passed on sort of almost um, you know, from birth, that by virtue of being human, there's something about us. There is this darkness in man's heart. The closest we come to that in the Bible is that verse or that passage in Romans chapter 5, which I don't think has to be read in that way. And actually, if you go back into the book of Genesis, go back to where it all began with those stories of Adam and Eve in uh, Genesis chapters 2 and 3. There's nothing, if you read those stories carefully, there's nothing there to suggest that human nature changes fundamentally from the before to the up. There are things that change quite significantly before and after, but it's not about who we are as human beings. That's not there in the story. Um, so uh, chapters 2 and 3 of Genesis, they contain a number of parables, stories really, um, and they're, they're designed to, to explain why the world is as it is. So why do human beings have to toil to make a living? Why do women experience pain in, in, in childbirth? Why is, is childbirth so dangerous? Uh, why do we live with guilt and shame? Why is life so hard? And above all, why do we die? Those are the sorts of questions that those early chapters of Genesis are trying to provide an answer for. And you might question some of the answers that those chapters give uh, about those things, but that, that's what they're trying to address. They're not, about, they're not trying to address the question, why do human beings do bad things? That's not the focus of, of those stories. That's not what they're there for. And in fact, if you go on to read that what follows on into chapter 4 of Genesis, the story of Cain and Abel. You remember the story of Cain and Abel? They both offer, um, they bring their offerings to God. Uh, Abel's is accepted, Cain's isn't. Cain, uh, in a fit of rage, kills his brother. It, when, when you read that story and read the aftermath of it, in verse 7 of uh, chapter 4, God says to Cain, if you do what is right, if we put that one up on the, yeah, brilliant, thank you. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. So that sounds more like Pelagius than Augustine, doesn't it? That's not saying, well, Cain, you've got no choice. You're always going to do this kind of thing because it's in you. There's something wrong with you. He's not saying that. He's saying you have a choice. You can choose to do the good thing, and you must choose to do the good thing. Because, yes, sin is crouching at your door. It's waiting, just as the serpent was waiting in the garden. But it's not inherent in being human. It's out external. The, the humanity there is in the, the freedom to choose, to choose to do what is good and right. And so, and I think also a key thing in that story as well, as we reflect on this idea of God's holiness and what that means and how God deals with and responds to sin and, and, um, uh, and evil, God's response to Adam and Eve is gracious. He clothes them. He sends them out of the garden, not as a punishment, but so that they won't live forever in their fallen state. 
It's an act of grace that prevents them from eating of the tree of life. It's not punishment, it's grace. So even at the very beginning, God doesn't turn away from Adam and Eve in disgust because of what they've done. He comes to meet them. And that's what we see again and again through the, story, through the whole of Scripture, isn't it? That the God who comes to meet us where we are in our mess, in our failure, not the God who turns away in disgust. And that's what we see in Jesus, isn't it? Above all, that's where we need to look. If we want to try and understand the character and the nature of God, we look at Jesus. If we want to understand what it means to talk about the holiness of God, then we look at Jesus. And Jesus never turned away from anyone in disgust. Well, except perhaps sometimes the Pharisees, except sometimes those people who thought they were okay. Those people who thought, well, we're okay, it's those people over there that are the problem. Maybe sometimes Jesus got a little bit disgusted with that. But not with the mess, not with the failure, not with the people who knew that they'd messed up. Those are the people that Jesus reaches out to because that's the, na the nature and the character of God. He reaches out to us in our failure rather than turning away. So it seems to me... Uh, that if we want to take the Bible seriously, that we're not compelled to hang on to this notion of original sin. And in fact, I think the Bible points us in the opposite direction. So there's a brilliant quote from uh, Daniel Schroyer, the writer of this book. Um, she says, original sin is bad for people and it isn't in the Bible. Time to get rid of it. Which is a pretty good summary, I think, of where I would want to be and where I think um, the Bible actually points us. So if we do this, though, what about, what about this idea that perhaps this is one of those foundational things that if you take it away, does everything collapse? What, do you, what are we left with? What, what might we put in its place? If it's not original sin, then, then what is it? Well, I think, first of all, we need to see ourselves differently, to think in terms of original goodness rather than total depravity. Yeah, so it starts with how we see ourselves as human beings, to think in terms of original goodness. Genesis chapter 1 tells us that when God completed his work with the creation of human beings, he declared everything to be very good. Not perfect in the sense that we would normally think about it, but fit for purpose. God says, yeah, this is what I wanted to create. This is, this is the way I want things to be. And human beings are the culmination of that and, and the focal point for that in many ways. And there's nothing in the biblical story to suggest that that seal of approval has been withdrawn. There's nothing to suggest that now God looks at the world and says, it's not very good now. Yes, it's, it's messed up and there's all sorts of stuff that, that has kind of has happened and so on. But that fundamental um, assessment of creation is that it is good. The Bible encourages us to see ourselves as genetically good rather than basically bad. That we're born good, we're not born bad. Now you may well be thinking, well that's a nice idea, I'd really like to believe that, but what about this? What about Ukraine? What about corrupt politicians? What about that person at work that just seems to be nasty all the time? What about the stuff in me that I know isn't what it should be and could be? What about, and so on. Because there's a whole heap of evidence, isn't there, to support the opposite view. The reason why we hold on to this view, perhaps, of this dark... And this is where I think the other book, um, the Humankind book, is really helpful. Because um, 
he sets out from the very beginning. He says, I want to argue for a very simple idea, which is that human beings are basically decent. And the whole book is, is, is tackling that. But he, he does it by looking at uh, a lot of the evidence to the contrary. He looks at some of the ways in which we've... Um, some of the research that's been done, some of the sort of social experiments that have been done as a way of kind of trying to understand our humanity. And he tackles a lot of those things. He looks at, okay, if we want to believe that we're fundamentally good, why is it that we do bad things? And he looks at some of the ways of understanding that, some of the explanations for that. And so I think it's a really helpful book in that sense, if, you, if you're kind of trying to sort of, if you've got that sort of yes, but, in your mind about this whole thing. If you're thinking, yeah, but what about all that other stuff? I'd really commend it as a, as a good read around that. And I do think it's possible to believe that human beings are fundamentally good while still engaging with all the reality of human existence to, to see us in our, in our glory and in, in, and in our grime, if you like. The reality of life, I think we can still hold on to this view that we are good, that we're born good, and that that's what's in us. That's, that's the way we're designed to live, and that's the way that we can live with the grace and the help of God and, and of one another as well, as we, as we aim for that, as we aspire to that. We are good people who sometimes mess up rather than bad people who sometimes do good things. It's that way around, I think. So I think we need to think in terms of original goodness, but also in terms of our relationship with God, how does that work? What, what is God's attitude to us? And I think the alternative to original sin is to think in terms of original blessing. We're not born under condemnation, but under blessing. And however our lives unfold, this blessing is not withdrawn. And I like the way that uh, Daniel Schroyer describes this. Um, if we could have it on the screen. Yeah, great. Thank you. I'll just read it from here rather than turning around. Before anything else is true about us, before we can talk about what we're good at or what we're bad at, what we loathe, what we favor, before we can talk about our gifts or struggles, virtues or vices, before we can even begin to talk about what it might mean for us to be saved, what is true is that we are in a relationship with God and God started it and God is sticking with it. I just think that's a really nice... We're in a relationship with God. He started it and he's sticking with it. And she uses this idea of the God who sticks with it as a way of talking about this original blessing. God doesn't give up on that relationship. Whatever mess we make of things, that commitment to us from God, from our creator, doesn't change. That blessing into which we're born doesn't, isn't removed. We may distance ourselves from it we may run a million miles from it, but from God's side, it's never withdrawn. That's who we are, and that's who we can be. That's who God intends us to be. When Jesus was asked to explain to the religious leaders to sort of justify his ministry, to explain why it was that he spent time with, with sinners, with the wrong people, Jesus told a famous story about a young man who left home in disgrace, who lived a reprobate life, and then slunk back home, hoping maybe for a job as a servant. You know the story, the prodigal son. And the whole story hinges on the fact that in the father's eyes, the son had never stopped being a son. That's, why the, that's how the story works. 
The son had assumed that he'd forsaken any sense, any claim on his father, any sense that he could still be called a son. The best he could hope for, perhaps, was he could be a servant in his father's household, maybe work his way up a little bit through the ranks. But in the father's eyes, he'd never stop being a son. And that's the key thing to the whole story. And that's what Jesus is saying. If you want to understand me and what I'm about, why I came, what I'm doing, what I'm saying, that's what you need to know. I come because the Father has sent me and the Father has never stopped seeing you as his children. However you see yourselves and however you see other people, that's the reality. So we are born good and we are born into blessing and our calling is to embrace that reality, to know that we love and to pursue goodness, to nurture that part of us that is, that is fundamental to who we are. We are born good and we are born into blessing. My wife has a, a question that is a, a favorite question of hers when it comes to a talk like this. The question is, so what? <laughs> she always wants to know, so what? And that's a good question, really, for people like me who are kind of a little bit up in the clouds with ideas and stuff sometimes. So brings us a little bit back down to a, so what? Does it matter? Does it matter that we've kind of spent a few minutes thinking about this this morning? Does it matter whether we believe this or believe something else? Well, yeah, I think it does matter, actually, because I do think the way that we think shapes the way that we behave. It shapes the way we think of ourselves. It shapes the way we treat other people. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's our thinking the way that we think. It doesn't mean we have to think deep thoughts about everything, but we all have a theology. We all have a way of understanding God and ourselves and other people. And it matters how that, how that looks. Um, and again, there's plenty of research to suggest that expectations of ourselves and expectations of others can really shape behavior and attitudes. The way we see ourselves, the way we see other people, isn't just an internal thing. It affects the way that we act. It affects the way that we live, our attitudes, and so on. And so I think if we dispense with the idea of original sin and think in terms of original blessing, then we'll see ourselves as children of God rather than sinners. We need to dispense with that, that notion that we're sinners. We're children of God who sometimes sin, maybe often sin, maybe often get it wrong. We are children of God who mess up not people who are messed up. And there's an important difference. And I think if we begin to see ourselves in that way, then we can begin to act accordingly. We can act that out. We can act and begin to live as children of God, as people who are loved, deeply loved, for who we are, not who we want to be, not who we should be, not because we're not like somebody else, but for who we are. We can be loved and know that we're loved for that, and we can begin to act accordingly. And we can take responsibility for our actions as well. That's the other thing about original sin is that if we're not careful, it takes away that sense of responsibility because we just say, well, that's just me. You know, I'm just, you know, just who I am. We're all, we're all sinners, aren't we, kind of thing. Yeah, but actually we're not. <laughs> we're children of God and we're called to a lifestyle and a way of living and being which is better than that. So original goodness, I think, also means that we can approach others differently. We can have an attitude of trust and openness rather than fear and suspicion. We can begin to look for the good in others rather than expecting the worst. 
I think there are implications too for how we organise churches and our, our society, our, our, our schools. You know, there's all sorts of ways I think in which this can play out if we begin to see one another as fundamentally good rather than fundamentally damaged and flawed. So yes, I think it does matter that we get this right and that we think about it carefully. So just to repeat again, original sin is bad for people and it isn't in the Bible. Time to get rid of it. Time to embrace the reality of original blessing and to believe in original goodness. Shall we just take a moment to pray? So in rejecting the notion of original sin, we're not pretending that everything is fine. So let's begin by acknowledging that. Loving God, gladly we live and move and have our being in you. Yet always, in the midst of this creation glory, we see sin's shadow and feel death's darkness. Around us, in the earth, sea and sky, the abuse of matter. Beside us, in the broken, the hungry and the poor, the betrayal of one another. And often, deep within us, a striving against your spirit. O Trinity of love, Forgive us that we may forgive one another. Heal us that we may be people of healing. And renew us that we also may be makers of peace. Amen. And let's take a moment to reflect on how we see ourselves. Does that label sinner still hang around there somewhere for you or are you able to see yourself all your flaws and weaknesses but are you able to see yourself as a child of God living under his blessing Let's think about those around us as well how we see them our friends family neighbors and colleagues those that we're drawn to and those that we find it hard to like. How do we see others? And let's think too about the places where we live out our lives. Home, school, college, workplaces, community groups that we're part of. What's the culture like in those places? How do people treat one another? How do we treat others? Loving God, Father and Mother to us all, help us to see ourselves as you see us, to know that you're always with us and for us, and in seeing ourselves more truly, may we find and nurture and pursue the goodness which is in us from birth. Help us to be generous and kind and hopeful in our assessment of others. And in seeing others as you see them, may we become less fearful and suspicious and more open and trusting. And in those places and contexts where we live out our lives, help us to see how we might change cultures for good. 
May we, with humility and grace, be agents of change in the world that you love. Amen.